Hello and welcome to the New Books in Native American Studies podcast. My name is James Mackay. I'm an assistant professor in British and American literatures at European University Cyprus. Today I'll be talking with Linda Lagarde-Grover and the book that we'll be discussing is her recent collection of 50 short meditative non-fiction essays, Anigamasing, Seasons of an Ojibwe Year, published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2017. Linda is a distinguished scholar who's received multiple awards for her teaching and for fictional works, including her short story collection, The Dance Boots, her poetry collection, The Sky Watched, and her novel, The Road Back to Sweetgrass, which won the first book award from the Native Writers Circle of the Americas. She's a member of the Boys Fort Band of Ojibwe and also serves as Professor of American Indian Studies at the University of Minnesota Duluth. But her relationship to Duluth and the Duluth area goes much deeper than that, as this book bears witness. Bonjour, Linda, and welcome to the New Books Network. Miigwech for the opportunity to discuss this wonderful book. Well, bonjour, James, and miigwech for having me here. It's quite a, quite a pleasure to talk with you today. Uh, can we start by talking about the inspiration for the book? What is it that appealed to you about the essay form, and what inspired you to put these particular essays together? These Essays are very short, and they are based on um, a series of newspaper columns that I was writing for a local paper over over several years, and kind of combined and reorganized and rewritten, and with some um, some new essays written. They they seem to follow a seasonal theme, but it is not only seasons of the year, which is something that is at the foundation of many Ojibwe writings, I think, because of where we live, where our seasons are so distinct and our our, um, our traditional lifestyle has been based on those, you know, what the, the gifts of each season are. But also this, as I'm looking at this stuff, it looks like it really is the, the seasons of a person's life. And then not just my life, but the seasons of, of, a, of a human's life. And so that's why you know, the seasonal theme just seemed to seem to um, emerge on its own as I was going through these and putting the book together. Okay. I mean, I, I noticed that um, one of the first pieces in the opening section, Siguan, uh, which means spring, um, begins when you say, uh, when I was a little girl. And then the last story, the last section begins with the first time a young woman acknowledges me as an elder. Um, so is this book a kind of autobiography of, of yourself as part, part, part of what it is? I suppose you could call it a memoir. It is my my own experiences as an Anishinaabe woman in in Anagamasing um, in Duluth here. So it is that, but I I think that it is a collective story too. And it's um, and I did try to bring some of our some of our um, I guess you would call them our traditional beliefs about the beginning of the world and how things were created and how how we are supposed to be acting and reacting to things. And so it is not strictly an autobiography then in that way, but I think it is sold as a, as a memoir. It's sold as a, a book of essays and a memoir, but uh, in terms of memoir, um, maybe you could give um, our listeners some idea of your um, background, of where you come from and, uh, and your upbringing. 
I was born in Duluth, and Anagamasing is an Ojibwe word for Duluth, and it means the translation to English is the place of the small portage. And we're on Lake Superior, a very large lake, and there is a kind of a long sandbar here where years ago Ojibwe people could portage; they could cross um, cross over over land in you know a very short distance there, maybe a, a two three blocks. And it was it was an easy place, an easy place to cross as you're traveling by water. And I was born I was born in Duluth and I was born actually fairly within blocks of the big lake myself. My family moved here, oh gosh, probably a hundred years ago or so from two different reservations. My grandmother is from far far north. Uh, couple, two, three hours north of here. And she is from the Boys Fort Band, that reservation. And my grandfather was born north of here too. And he is from the Fond du Lac Band, the Fond du Lac Reservation. And so that's my background as a, as a person who is, you know, of, of the people here and of an actual native nation and born in Duluth, which has a, you know, fairly good sized native population, mostly Ojibwe. I'm the oldest uh, child in a very large family, and I've lived here, I don't know, most of my life. I lived up north for a while. Okay. Um, and, um, yeah, and, and in terms of uh, schooling, you were schooled in Duluth? I went to Duluth Public Schools, and um, I graduated from high school, which was uh, not, not usual at the time that I was in school in the late 1960s. Actually, it isn't. It isn't an ex, you know, it isn't um it's not all that common these days. Our graduation rate is not is not very high for many, many reasons. And I I actually I started school at the University of Minnesota Duluth here, but I I failed in my first term here and never went back to school full time. So I've had, you know, many different jobs in my life, many different things that I've done. I married I helped put my husband through college. I have children. I began to work in Indian education programs when I was expecting my third child and I was living up north. Indian education programs were brand new in this country and a small group of parents could get together and apply for a small grant in their school district. And I became a part of that. And then after a a while, began to work in that program in Indian education programs. This would be in like um, the late 1970s. And I've been working in Indian education or involved in Indian education ever since. I've worked as an Indian education director or worker or advocate in the, in public schools. I've worked in that job at a, at a, um, at a community college. And I, um, and I've been working as a, as a professor in American Indian Studies at UMD here for, I think this might be my 13th year. So I haven't done this all my life, but I do love it. It's my best job so far. And what does Indian education mean in this context? It means programs that are that are funded by government funds, by state or federal funds that are there to to enhance the educational experience of American Indian students and ultimately to to improve 
improve things like academic performance, school attendance, and graduation from high school and, and attendance at colleges and universities or wherever wherever else they would like to go to further themselves in in their lives. You know, some go to a trade school or to a community or to a tribal college run by by various tribes and some go to universities. And some go to a combination of all of these, which is actually what I did over my lifetime. Education is a precious thing and it is a sacred trust that has been that has been something that has been held as a, a great responsibility and great honor to be part of in Ojibwe culture and tradition for many, many, many generations. And so for those of us who have worked in Indian education, we, we feel that honor and we feel part of carrying something forward that has changed greatly since, you know, our great grandparents taught the young. But um, Still exists the education and the preparation of younger generations for their responsibilities in the world. So what can you do to bring that old culture of education in line with the requirements of SATs and so forth? How do you combine the two? We must live that and make that the foundation of our lives to continue as as Anishinaabe people, individuals or collectively. And so it's, I, I do not think that these, um, that Anishinaabe way and Anishinaabe teachings and, and uh, majority culture teachings are, are exclusive of one another. I, I do believe that we, that our, our Anishinaabe way is a, is a source of tremendous strength and, and enhances whatever we do within an educational system. It took me a long time to to arrive at that that piece of knowledge, I guess, which was there all along. And there are many, many reasons for that in our histories and in our current current society that that might make students feel that that is not possible. But it's not only possible, but I think it makes our educational experience so much, so much more for us and also for the world around us outside of Anishinaabe country. Uh, how so? Well, to teach and to teach, uh, um, you know, within reason, of course. I mean, <laughs> um, as as we're as we're living our lives, we teach by example and and even in our everyday speech and manner of doing things. And our Anishinaabe way of doing things, Minobimadasi, when is uh, translates to the the living of the good life. And in that, in teaching that to the rest of the world, it's something that certainly our our grandparents and grandparents and grandparents strove to do, and they did this for for a reason. And so it is a it is a great honor to to carry on what they what they began in a changed world. You know? I mean, they didn't. Our great great grandparents um, learned everything at home and in their communities. That they that they would need to know to be good Anishinaabe people, good contributors of um, to to the society around them, and to live to live um, lives of of gratitude and and um, modesty and generosity. They they were um, they were taught that by older people. There was a great disruption in this with our boarding school system in this country. And I know that in my in my family, three and perhaps four generations of of families were 
subjected to a, a schooling education that was designed to actually eliminate, to annihilate all Anishinaabe beliefs. This would include religious beliefs and that philosophical, that that worldview of of living living the way of when And so it is quite a it is quite an adjustment over many generations to to be able to survive in an educational system and not feel that we are expected to abandon all that is important and essential as Anishinaabe people. And you mentioned a concept a couple of times there, Mino Madiswin, uh, which I'm probably pronouncing terribly. Um, which is, I mean, it's such a central concept in Anishinaabe culture, and it's it's I think quite difficult for uh, someone who's not brought up in that culture to get an idea of what that means. Would you define it a little? Bemadaziwen is the living of a life, and the implication is the living of the good life. And I guess it's the life of of um, of Anishinaabe values. In probably I don't know the last twenty years, maybe the word "mino" seems to be used ahead of Bemadaziwen, and "mino" would translate in English to "good." And I think that is there to really emphasize the goodness of the life. And so, "mino Bemadaziwen" is is based on basic Anishinaabe values and teachings, which is that we were created. There is a there is a creator who who made everything. We understand that we don't make anything, that we have been given many, many gifts, that we are to be, really, we should be thankful for this. So we're thankful every day. We understand because of this, we are rich. And we understand, too, that because we're rich, of course, we would we would be generous with others who might not have the same things that we have. And so we respect ourselves and the world around us. And we are aware of those who were before us and those who will come after us. It's a it's a very basic um I guess you would call it a based on on spiritual on religious beliefs. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask about next. It, it, it's it's a form of religion, but it's a it's a way of living with the sort of spiritual consciousness. Would that be a way of saying it? Um, yeah, and I and I do believe that that spiritual consciousness is not is not even. I don't know if that's stressed so much because it is so it is so basic. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I mean, in terms of um, concepts like these, how, how limiting is it writing in English for you rather than Anishinaabe Muin? English is my first language, so it is you know it's easy easy for me to write in English. And I've always enjoyed. I've always really liked reading and listening to stories. And in my family, there were there have been some some fine storytellers and. Um, you know, recounting of history and and um, an organization of things to make it uh, to make the tale interesting and um, instructive and entertaining all at the same time, which is the traditional way of um, of teaching the you know the the creation stories, the sacred stories. So I've always enjoyed a I've always enjoyed a good story, <laughs> and I and I always I always um, kind of hope that I might become 
somebody who could who could tell the story myself. And as I got older, I I um, I had an an older well several older relatives who, as I once I was well into adulthood, I wondered why why they were being so generous with me in sharing so much of this with me. And then I realized that it wasn't just because they like me, though I think they did, but I think they felt that, yes, here, here, here's another of the people who will be surviving to tell the story. And, you know, surviving sounds like a really grim word, and I, I guess that it is, but it is a miraculous thing. My husband tells me that, um, that any Native people are around today, and so to be to be able to tell stories is um, is a is a great privilege. I think it's a uh, it's a I have been given a a great gift in the opportunity to be able to do this. Yeah, it's um, uh, that's where business survivance comes in so nicely, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you know, with Anishinaabe or any Native language, we have. We have some real difficulties sometimes with with language. You know, it's not my first language, and uh, you know, I would I'm not a fluent speaker by any means. And what I what I do know is just what I've learned from hearing and stuff. So, though nowadays you can take it in school here at UMD at the college, you can take a Nishinaabe language Ojibwe language class. But for those during those boarding school years, and that was a very long time, it was a long, it was many decades, the native languages in this country were supposed to be eliminated. And so children were not allowed to speak them at school. And the language, you know, our Ojibwe language was was greatly affected by this. Now there is a revitalization of the language with the teaching in schools and stuff, but it's a, it's it's a long road back. Yeah, well, it's a it's an act of reconstruction, isn't it? Because so so many words must have been lost through that process. You know, many things have been lost, not just words, but much. I my my dad used to tell me this that there are things that were lost during those days that we we will never get back. And is it a, and is it you know he wondered, um, is it. He didn't feel it was proper to just go pursue them and, you know, chase chase these things down and grab them and reinvent them because they are so sacred that in themselves they they cannot be changed by what we think we might like to see or what we think we might like them to be. So, yeah, the language the language did change. Um, there are things that that were lost. There were always people who maintained these things, but it was it was at great price, and it was, and and there was there was a great deal of damage done. We still live with that today, but you know I believe that I believe that there is a with the great damage that has been done. I think there has been a great appreciation for Indianness amongst ourselves, and and we don't take it for granted. We're really sentimental about our children. And that is is the reason that, you know, I mean, it's so, so many times you, it just sounds like such, um, it, it's become almost trivial to hear, oh, children are our future. But, you know, the fact is for any, for any people they are, and with Anishinaabe people too, having lived for 
for many decades and for generations in communities where we could not take for granted that we would have ch- have our children there, that we would be able to raise them ourselves or see them or anything. You know, our, my grandmother was like that. Her children were all, and my great-grandmother too, their children were, were taken. They were removed from the home. And so there is a there is a great appreciation for having young life around and and to understand that this is this is what our what our what our survival is survivance yes i i do like that word yeah um in terms of that the, 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 this this particular book here you you've you've written this in actually quite in many ways a quite a, a deliberately simple style I, I was wondering how much this is intended as an educational book for uh younger audiences as well. You know, I I was writing these columns for a newspaper that is a it's a it was a free newspaper and it was around ever since well, I was a little girl and it was a paper that people in Duluth who might I mean anybody could get it and everybody seemed to read it, but especially people who would not be able to pay for a subscription to a newspaper. That was where they got their that was what they got their their printed printed uh, news from. And so I especially liked writing for that particular audience, which is very broad and very general. And yes, I wanted it to be something where I could, you know, maybe share, share some experiences and share a little bit of, of what I, you know, what I know or what I think. But it also, I wanted to Give an understanding, if I could, that there is a basic, uh, what an older man who was reading it called it a brotherhood. Um, he said he sensed that when he read my read my stuff in the paper, that that we we certainly are all all in this together. There have been some really difficult things in the past. There are difficult things in the present, but there's also tremendous beauty and just wonderful stuff about Anishinaabe and all native tribes here. And, um, and so that's why I did it. Um, it's, it's simple, but then the tone of, of what we would, he- what I would have heard from an older person when I was a, a young, a young woman would have been simple in its tone also. And that, that's what I was kind of striving for something that would be natural. In my other books, I I tried to do that too. I wrote them thinking about, you know, my aunts and my mother reading them, you know, that generation reading and and recognizing recognizing things, going, oh yeah, I know about that. Yeah, it, it, that explains why one name that kept coming to mind when I was reading it is Jim Northrup's, uh, who also is someone who who weaves wisdom. Oh, Jim Northrup, yeah. Yeah, uh, is is he someone you you um, were reading and? Oh, I, oh, I knew Jim Northrop. Yes, uh-huh. yes, I've I've read with Jim Northrop at at events and also with my cousin, my cousin um, Robert Swanson, who is a a fine poet who lives up up north, um, up where the Grand Portage Reservation is. So yes, the three of us in the past have read together, and and Jim Northrop, you know, certainly has his his wonderful, um, inimitable style of writing, his his command of the English language, and then his um, his integration of that with with Ojibwe language and thought and worldview. He was a wonderful wonderful writer and a very encouraging fellow writer to to me. 
How much is there now an, a distinctive Anishinaabe English language tradition of writing, do you think, which you and Jim would be part of? A tradition of writing? Well, ours wasn't really a written language. It was um, it was turned into like with English type uh, letters and things, probably in the 1850s by um, Bishop Baraga, who made a dictionary and then has, you know, has been. So there are English letters there. Are, there's a very complicated syllabary of, of a missionary too in the writing that I, I have absolutely no, no grasp on at all. But I think it's, I don't know if it would be writing so much as it would be um, passing, passing stories on to, to another generation. And I think that's what Jim Northrup was doing with his writing. And that's what I, you know, endeavor to do with my writing too. So it's the, it's the word, it's the story, it's the, it's the history, it's the, the how to act and how not to act, how to, the good way to be, all of that is tied into the stories and tied into the storytelling. And, and so the written word is one form of this, I guess is how I would put it. Yeah, and an, another form is um, sewing and, and repairing things, which is a, a really big feature in this book. There's a, something I saw you say, there can be a lot of satisfaction in the making and remaking of things, which this book obviously is. Um, what do you prefer, writing or sewing? I, I enjoy writing. I, I like to sew. It's, it's fun to make things. I, you know, I'm a, I, I'm a simple sewer. But I come from a family of, and I, mine is not unusual in any way, a family of people who have taken pride in remaking things, in using, using things up. And my cousin Bob, and you know, I did, I do mention him in this book a couple times. I think he calls it creative living, and he, he want, you know, he also mentions that it's a lot of fun. And so, uh, Bob's grandpa, and then you know, his mom and my dad were involved in in this too, as was all the family. Actually, made and sold things. They made some of the traditional arts, and then they also made things that were out of. Um, what Bob would call the scraps, the the castoffs of of larger American society, and made them into something something useful or something fun or something lovely, and and sold them too. And so that was a way as the economy changed into more of a cash economy around here for Indians. Probably I don't know around 1920, I think might be a kind of a turning point uh, point in time there, the, the need to get some cash money for things. That was how, that was how our family did this. And, um, and so it was actually kind of a natural transition from using up everything that's around you anyway, and making and remaking and, um, and making that into kind of like a little family business. Wonderful. I'm sort of moving on from that to you, you, you've been talking so much about traditional community and, and storytelling and life ways. So something that really jumped out for me in this book is the number of references to Facebook. Um, why, why was it important to include social media uh, in these essays? Or what appealed to you about that? 
goodness, I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> I guess it's just something something that we do. You know, there's um, there are sites on Facebook for like, um, oh, there's one I, I really like called the Ojibwe Language Fix of the Day, where um, there's, there's a whole bunch of people on there and there's people using Anishinaabe language, Ojibwe, and asking questions about it or sometimes making little jokes or making a sentence. And so that has been a part of language revitalization, but it's a means of communication that that is just so such a such a miraculous thing, I think. Goodness, I've I've um connected with people I'm related to who I've never met through through Facebook and just somebody knowing somebody else. Many native families were also, you know, the boarding school system, and I hate to keep Know, bring it back to that, but the but the effect was so profound and so long lasting. But after the boarding school era ended and it was dismantled beginning in the 1930s in this country, but after that were other programs and historical events that also broke up families and communities, really fractured things. And you know there was the um, the federal relocation programs of the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. There were there was a federal um, Indian adoption project which placed Native children outside of Native homes. There, you know, there's the fostering foster care system. There's all these things that that really impacted our families and and um, again caused tremendous damage. And oddly, Facebook. <laughs> seems to have made it possible for so many people to get back and to be, to get in touch and i so i I've, I've been in touch with cousins that i that i never knew <laughs> so it's it's just different you know um it's um it's kind of like you know my well my mother was you know when we had a um, she talked on the phone a lot to her girlfriends in the 50s and 60s when I was a girl at home. And it was just keeping in touch all the time. And this is before you could just dial long distance. So this would be people like on the other side of town, which is kind of a miraculous thing, too, to keep in touch. And so I think Facebook does the same thing. I know it certainly has its drawbacks, but uh, but my goodness, it's uh, it's it's made some things possible that have just been a lot of fun. <laughs> That's kind of interesting because, you know, obviously we're sort of in the era of the first social media president of the United States and so forth. So you, you're seeing it as a very positive thing and technology generally is quite positive for ongoing community and relationships. In that, I don't like opening up Facebook and seeing 50 posts where somebody's somebody's upset about, I don't know what, the president or something else. I just kind of skip over all this stuff because I, I actually like it just because I – because I love so much seeing pictures or seeing what people I know are are up to, and I know there's many people who feel obliged to share their something they read somewhere and send it all over on Facebook. I go, well, that's fine. You you feel called to do that, but I don't really feel called to read that. Mainly, I'd really like to see what your kids are up to. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I mean, I sort of wanted to uh, turn from that from to another theme I saw a lot in the book that I don't think we quite touched on, which is um, uh, sort of representations of Indianness and sort of striking back against a certain amount of ignorance in wider society. So you talk about Indian corn, you talk about uh, Thanksgiving traditions, um, uh, you talk about having to be the the representative at school at various points. Um, do you, would you talk a little bit about that? It 
it can be it can be sometimes a little bit of an aggravating thing. Sometimes it's kind of funny. And so there's kind of like a uh, maybe we would call it a parallel universe or parallel world of, of Indians and um, Ojibwe people and Anishinaabe people that is kind of watching this stuff as it goes on. And yeah, I mean, sometimes it is, it can be a little, little aggravating, you know, um, what do Indians think about something? I think, my goodness, we've got 500 tribes here in North America Every single one has its own way of doing things. They all have their own languages. They're, you know, there is not one common worldview. And so it is, you know, I always try to be, you know, as tactful as I can and not lecture people or hammer, hammer down on things like that. But I do kind of as gently as I can let people know that. I mean, I certainly can't speak for all of the Indians or all of the Ojibwe's or all of the Boys Fort people or all of the Lagarde family. You know, we, we are all individuals with, with some things that tie us together. At the same time, it is, it is kind of funny to go to the grocery store and see that, my goodness, in this day and age, they're still selling candy at Halloween and Thanksgiving that says really big letters on the bag, Indian corn. And they were doing that when I was a little girl. <laughs> but, you know, I, I bought some. And actually, when I was going out and doing some readings out of Anagamasing, you know, at some bookstores and places when it first came out, um, since it was in Indian corn season, I actually bought a, several bags and passed it out and read that little essay to people, <laughs> Indian and non-Indian people. And people got a real kick out of it, you know. And, and then there's people who said, I never even thought about that. And I thought, well, well, now you have. <laughs> That's just an example. It's it's so it's so wonderful talking to you. You have such a sort of positive vision for the future. It seems to me. You th you think things are, are are really healing here. Oh no, I don't think there is such a thing as healing. Um, I I sometimes I feel that there is a pressure on American Indian people to um, to heal, kind of like you'd say to a dog. Heal. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but um, sometimes I will come across something where I will be speaking somewhere and someone will want to apologize. I go, just, oh, my goodness. And I tell them, you know, you, you know, certainly you certainly didn't do anything and you have a good heart and, you know, don't, you know, you don't need to do this. Um and I also wonder what that apology is supposed to do for anybody. Um, it certainly doesn't make me feel any better. Does it make that person feel better? And that person didn't do anything anyway. Um, some of the things that have happened to Indian people are so, so, I mean, I think that, I think it is a, affected a, a change that I think there are things that you, I know you simply cannot go back. And so I feel that sometimes there is a pressure to, and now we're healed. And with the seventh generation, we're healed. And I think, no, now, now that I've been on the earth here for, for quite a while here, I, I see that, that no, we just, we come to grips with things and we take what we can to make, to make things the best that we can and try not to dwell on things every day. But 
there are there are some difficult things that I mean there are some things that cannot be just undone or fixed. And so I think we all just have to to learn and to you know and to go on go on and and live good lives really. So sorry to say there's no healing, but that's <laughs> but I think that's one thing if there's one thing I've learned that's that's it. And I think um so so then I think well then then it's good to not be pressuring people to heal because that makes things even harder. No, I think that that, that really speaks to to the sort of earned wisdom in this book. It's uh, thank you for that. Um, uh, sorry, what was the other thing? Oh yeah, um, uh, you you you're now uh, working uh, at a university, as you say, for the last thirteen years, and you're uh, a professor there. How, how uh, well are you able to combine being in a Western university with being working in Anishinaabe intellectual traditions in the way you do? It can be kind of a a trick doing that, and if I'm going to make a choice at any point at this point in my life, Anishinaabe, Anishinaabe ways, you know, certainly are are always. Um, always have precedence over other ways because of the, you know, I, it, it is quite a privilege to be in a position like this. And so in that, I, I really feel that any, any Anishinaabe people feel that obligation to, to, um, to serve the people and to serve that way first, understanding that, you know, that is the way, Really, for the greater good of of everyone. So, yeah, sometimes sometimes it is a little bit um, sometimes it's a little bit difficult. And in writing, I think that's why I decided. You know, I have this book of essays, but most of what I write is fiction. I have a fiction manuscript that I've finished just in the last few weeks that I'm going to be sending out. And I I do think that through fiction, what I'm hoping to say and to share might be more effective than nonfiction or essay essays or or research papers i i'm looking to to um i'm looking for the same people who picked up the free newspaper the budgeter and read it and saw my column i'm i always have ever you know those people, those budgeter readers in mind when I when I write anything now. That's a luxury to be able to do that, I know. But it's also, I think, something that is very, very important and something that my my dad and my my grandparents um I think they would like to see that. And I think about that a lot. Um what would the people in the generations before me want to see it connects with what you're saying in the book about uh, veterans and, and military service isn't it the service is such a core value yes large large numbers of american indian people have served in the armed forces for for the united states and that's that's kind of a um outside of indian country sometimes that is a surprise to people because of course they say well this country really caused you guys a lot of harm how can you how can you do this but the way i think the way it was explained to me once by a friend of mine whose husband is a is a vietnam veteran a combat veteran she said they are protecting they are protecting us they're protecting the the land and the people and that means the land and all the people on it because we we can you know this is I mean, we consider it our land, and other people here are our guests. That's 
that's the way I think of it. And in Anishinaabe tradition, when you've got a guest, you invite them in your house and you make sure they've got a, a nice, comfy place to sit and you share what you have with them, you know, your food and um, and treat them well. And so that concept, I think, might be intertwined with um, serving serving others. And that includes serving in the armed forces for for this country. And also there's the idea of the, the warrior, warrior who is who is selfless and um and courageous and you know certainly a warrior is frightened as often as the rest of us but is willing to do this for us and that is that is such an that is such a um, a part of the honor of being anishinaabe and i i can't for the men but i would say particularly for the men but you know many of our of our women have served in the armed forces here too yeah, but this sort of links, um, you know, everything that you've got in your book about domesticity, cooking, ironing, and so forth. That's just another form of service, isn't it? I'm not saying that it's as gendered as that, but there is something of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It's doing. It's doing for others. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, what, uh, if I can ask, what's the new manuscript that you've just completed? What do you? Is it a new novel? Yes, it's my third fiction piece. My first one, the dance boots focused on um, a century of um, a Northeastern Ojibwe family and really the effects of boarding school education on several generations of a family. My second book, The Road Back to Sweetgrass, focused more on the assimilation type policies of the, you know, the boarding school, but also of um, later, the later, the second half of the 20th century, and those effects, and those, that story is told through uh, young Native women in northeastern Minnesota. I mean, you know, they do things like, yes, indeed, there is the backdrop of Indian policy, which is ever present in the books and in our lives, but against that backdrop, people are, you know, they're falling in love, or they're cooking, or, you know, you're right, they're ironing. They're washing dishes and they're interacting with with the world around them. But my third book then um, is about the generation that would have been born in the seventies, and that that story is also told through um, through women. I, I think there are men who tell some of these stories in these books, but I think the women are who the stories are. Uh, they carry the stories, I guess. And so in this in this book, then these are two two girls who go through the foster care system in the in the 70s 80s and 90s and then and then they grow up and uh, against the backdrop of history they too live their lives they get jobs they you know do the things people do deal with their car you know <laughs> wonderful well thank you so much for taking so much time to talk to me um it's been an absolute privilege to hear everything um and uh, uh thank you Well, James, thank you very much. It's been a privilege to talk with you. Okay, so um, that's me signing off um, for the Native Books, uh, New Books and Native American Studies uh, podcast. And uh, uh, keep listening. Thank you. Goodbye. 